Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We are so glad that you're here today. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kirk Katsorki is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 27, so make sure to have your Bible handy, because in this episode, we're going to be talking about the unifying power of the gospel. We're also going to be talking about everyone's need to have Jesus as their Savior. Now, God has some incredible answers and some incredible truths to share with us in His Word, so let's open up our Bibles and get started. Well, good morning. Awesome to have everybody here. Um, Courtney's running, all right, right, good deal, okay. Some serious greeting going on there. Um, if you were, many of you were with us here last night, we had Don Bauman's retirement party, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, um, and uh, good memories, uh, just kind of who Don in, is, has, who Don has been over the years, and who he is now, uh, celebrating those things, and uh, share with you, he'll, he'll be back the next two weeks uh, to, to teach from Acts, he's going to cover Acts chapter 26 and 27, I'll be in 25 today, but Don will be back for a couple weeks in February, and then we'll see him again in July, so those are some times that he's scheduled to come back and teach. We're definitely looking forward to those. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25. And um, this is one of those chapters of the Bible, when you read it, you go, okay, what now? Um, and uh, as, as I read it, I, I kind of wondered, what is the practical application of this chapter? Um, and it's also one of those chapters where, uh, if you ever watched a, a TV series, there's that episode right before the climax where everything is being set up, and then you really want to watch the next episode. Uh, that's kind of this chapter. It's setting up chapter 26. Um, and so as we go through this, I'm going to share with you some of the people that are here. Uh, we have uh, a transition in leadership, both in the, the Roman government of Judea, as well as um, as well as the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish group of people in Jerusalem. There's some leadership changes going on there, um, and it's going to cause Paul to be uh, in another trial here. Um, and then as we look at this, you're also going to see kind of the question I have on your, your hand out there is, is uh, you know, do you ever feel like your beliefs in Jesus are on trial? And what should you do in those situations? Um, may, maybe it's with an individual in your family. You know, you're, you're saying that you're a follower of Jesus. And every time you have a conversation with this member of your family, uh, your beliefs are on trial. Uh, maybe it's a coworker where, you know, it's clear to them that you're a Christian. And every time your belief in Jesus comes up, you're, you're on trial, or maybe it's just you feel general societal pressure um, that your beliefs are on trial. What should you do in those situations? Um, So we'll look at that as well. Uh, I want to give you a reminder of what's going on here. Uh, Paul has been imprisoned, uh, or at least in detention, in Caesarea. If you look up what Caesarea was at the time, it's it's sort of like the resort that the Romans built by the sea. Um, But Paul is there for two years. He has some degree of freedom, uh, but he's also in detention there. And during this two-year period, he's been interacting with the previous governor, Felix. And uh, Felix is going to be replaced right as we enter into this chapter with a guy named Festus. That's the, the transition that's going on in the Roman leadership. Um, now, if, if you want to remember Paul's life and ministry of what we know of it from the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, he's introduced to us as Saul of Tarsus, and he is a persecutor of the way. The people that are following Jesus, he is capturing them and imprisoning them. Um, when, uh, when, when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 27, or in Acts chapter 7, it says that uh, Paul was standing there and he approved. This was good, uh, that the followers of Jesus were being captured and killed. And then in Acts chapter 9, Paul 
Paul is on his way to Damascus and he is going there to uh, imprison Christians. And he meets Jesus on that road to Damascus and his life is changed dramatically. And then he goes through a period of a little over a decade where there's some training going on in his life. And uh, then he goes on three missionary journeys. And these missionary journeys, he's traveling around the Mediterranean world. He goes to about 10 different Roman provinces during that time. And uh, multiple people, both of Jewish and Gentile background, are, are hearing the message of Jesus and believing. But throughout that time, he's receiving persecution. And the, the reason that he goes through this persecution largely has to do with the fact that the Jewish people are upset that they're allowing Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to follow Jesus without following the law of Moses. And that becomes the point of contention. Now, the early church, they convene in Acts chapter 15. They have the Jerusalem Council, and they say, uh, we're going to allow Gentiles into the church, and they do not have to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. They do say three things, that it's really important that they abstain from idolatry, from sexual immorality, and that they value life. Those three things are very clear. These are important, that there's, you worship Jesus first, no idolatry, that you, you don't practice sexual immorality because that was a common practice at the time and how they worshiped false gods. It went right along with idolatry. And then that you value life because in the worshiping of idols, we also find that we tend to devalue the life of other people. And so that was what the Jerusalem Council walked away with it from. Uh, But Paul is still receiving a lot of trouble from his missions going around and proclaiming the message of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And there's a group of people that follow him, and they are known as Judaizers, and it's very important to them that you keep the Jewish law. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to keep the Jewish law. Um, And this all boils to a head when he returns to Jerusalem. He goes on these missionary journeys during the 40s and 50s AD, and then he returns to Jerusalem late 50s, and this all boils over with an interaction with the Sanhedrin where they accuse him of uh, going against the law and the temple, and that he's also an insurrectionist. He is a rebel against Rome. And he goes through a couple of different trials there in Jerusalem, and then he's transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, um, and then he's kept there uh, by this governor Felix. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 24 is those two years of his detention have gone by, and now we meet this guy Festus. And so if you want to pick up with me in uh, Acts chapter 25, verse 1, it says, three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Festus becomes the governor, and just three days into his governorship, he heads straight in to Jerusalem. He, He knows that there's some things to deal with in Jerusalem, and he wants to get there. Verse 2, the chief priests and leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. And so he, he visits Jerusalem, and the first one of the first things the, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem wants to do is, ah, new guy, let's get at Paul. Okay, so they, they still want to get at Paul. And it says they were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. So please bring him to Jerusalem, and, and we're not even going to bother with the trial. We're going to kill him on his way here. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him, if he has done anything wrong. When he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. 
When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. And so this is 50 or 69 or 59 or 60 AD. Festus replaces the Felix as the governor of Judea. Nero is the emperor at the time. And immediately what he does is he goes to Jerusalem. And he needed to do that because there were several things that he had to deal with. Uh, the historian Josephus describes Festus as an honorable and capable leader, uh, but he was facing a set of insurmountable crises. Festus, uh, excuse me, the governor before him, Felix, had really mishandled relationships with the Jewish people, and because of that, there were little rebellions springing up all over Judea. When he became the governor of Judea, uh, Festus, he was immediately faced with ongoing strife between Jews and Greeks in Caesarea. Uh, a group of Jews led by a false messiah had plundered and burned nearby villages and fled into the desert. So he's immediately having to deal with, uh, there's an uprising of Jewish people. Um, and then in Jerusalem, the temple officials had built a tall inner wall that kept Agrippa and Festus, both non-Jews, from observing the inner courts of the temple. Um, and, and so they're, they're being excluded from what's going on in Jerusalem, and there's Jewish uprisings outside of Jerusalem. So Festus understands that I have to get in here and get this Jewish situation under handle. And so he goes straight into Jerusalem. Now, as, as he does that, the first thing that the Jewish leadership asked for is, can we uh, have Paul brought to Jerusalem? Festus says, no, we're going to keep him in Caesarea, and that's going to become really important here in a minute. But what happens as Paul, he's going to stand trial before a, a group of uh, the current high priest, so there's a changeover in leadership there, the current high priest, other previous high priests, and the rest of the Sanhedrin. And so he's, he's before a group of Romans. Um, Festus has his council, but then there's also this group of Jewish people. And as we go through this, we're going to see that justice and morality is not really what they're after here. What they're after is maintaining position and power. Okay, And so that's who Paul stands before in this. Now, the Sanhedrin, this group of people, they were supposed to be the group of people that represented God to the rest of the world. But what this group is known for is infighting, doctrinal confusion, and violence. Uh, they don't get along with each other, except for in this one case where they don't like Jesus and they don't like Paul. But you had factions within the leadership, okay? And so here's this group of people that they're supposed to be representing God, but what you know of them is infighting, doctrinal confusion, and violence. Um, and if you know your church history, this is also something that can happen in the church. We can, be no more, we can be known more for how we fight with each other than how we represent God to the world. Uh, we can be known more for doctrinal confusion and what we believe to be true about certain things than we are known for sharing the resurrection of Jesus with the community around us. Um, and so uh, that's kind of who Paul is standing before. Uh, that's also something that, can, that we have to be careful of. I don't know if you've ever met a Christian and their reputation is that they're really good at fighting with other Christians. Um, they're really good at telling you how they know more about the millennium than you do. Um, they're really good at telling you about how much better they understand Arminianism and Calvinism than you do. They're, they're really good at arguing theology, but they're not very good at representing Jesus to the community around them. And, and this is something that we as individuals have to watch out for. Do I know my secondary doctrine? Absolutely. Do I make it primary? I do not. Uh, and the reason why is because God has not called us to be witnesses of secondary doctrine, but he has called us to be witnesses of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is what we want to be known for. And as I go through this, I'm going to show you that's where Paul places the emphasis, okay? 
Um, now, there's some very serious charges that are brought against Paul here. And he says in verse 8, he then made his defense. And he says, neither against Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. And uh, if you were with us last week, you know that when he was brought before the lawyer that the Sanhedrin brought roughly two years ago when Felix was the governor, they, they, they said that he is an enemy of Rome. Uh, and he is guilty of sedition. He is an enemy of Jerusalem. Uh, he has sinned against the temple and made it unclean. And so uh, this is why he is deserving of death. And what Paul says, he says, I am not guilty of any of those things. I'm not guilty against Jewish law, nor the temple, nor Caesar. I haven't sinned in any way in these areas. And so uh, he's not a threat to Jerusalem and he's not a threat to Rome and, he, and he's not going to be made out as somebody who is. And I think that this is an important distinction that he makes. Um, and this is something that if, you, if, you, if you're paying attention, you know that our culture more and more is saying that, that Christianity is something that's dangerous to culture. Uh, that the beliefs that we hold are too restrictive. Uh, that our understanding that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, singular, uh, that's, 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 that doesn't go with pluralism. That doesn't jive with the way that our society thinks. And so those are dangerous beliefs. Um, the idea that, there is, that there's morality that is singular and God has revealed it through the scriptures, that's too restrictive. That doesn't go. And so th these are things that we have to be aware of that as we share the message of who Jesus is and we live an upright and righteous life empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're going to receive criticism for that because it doesn't mesh with the society around us. But Paul's saying, I'm not guilty of doing anything wrong or harmful to anyone. Now, the problem of the gospel, and this is what this group of people has run into, the problem of the gospel is that people who love power usually hate Jesus. Um, and the reason they do is because when Jesus shows up, he doesn't say, would you like to be my pal? Would you like to be friends? And you can do what you do and I'll do what I do. No, he shows up and he says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily. You have to submit to me. You have to be willing to say that Jesus is Lord. And so this idea of casual Christianity and this thing that we sort of do here and there and Jesus is a part of our life, but he's not central to our life. He, that's not Christianity. And that's what makes the gospel offensive is when Jesus shows up in our lives, he lets every single one of us know there's somebody fundamentally broken at your core, you're rebellious towards God and you're hurtful to other people and all of those things leave you in a situation where you are condemned. Now, the good news of the gospel is then he says, but I'm going to head to the cross for you. Jesus goes to the cross for all of those things, and he dies there for the remission of our sins so that we can be made new. But if you love power, if you love being in control, if you love thinking that you can make the world a better place without God, you're probably not going to like Jesus. Because he doesn't show up and say, you look pretty good. You look pretty sufficient. The world is just like I want it to be. No, he walks into humanity and he says there's some fundamental things we have to deal with. And so the gospel is offensive in that way. And so that's what these people are dealing with. And that's why they hate Paul. Because as Paul shares the gospel, he makes it very clear that they are in opposition to God, that they are in opposition to the Messiah, that they are in opposition to what God wants to do in their lives and on this earth. 
And so that's why they want him gone. That's why they're willing to lie. That's why they're willing to set up schemes to jump him on the road and kill him. Because the message of Jesus is offensive to them. And if you're honest with yourself, the first time you heard the message of Jesus, it was offensive to you. Because you heard, I don't call the shots anymore. I'm not in control. There's something fundamentally wrong with me? That's offensive. Now the upside to all of this is you're, you're brought into the light and you realize what's wrong. And when that happens, then you know your need of a savior and God is willing to step in and change the situation. He did so through his son's death, burial, and resurrection. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. But what happens here is Paul defends himself and then Festus in verse 9 it says but Festus wanting to do the Jews a favor replied to Paul are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges Paul replied I'm standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried I have done no wrong to the Jews even you yourself know very well if I did anything wrong or I am deserving of death I'm not trying to escape death but if there is nothing that these men can accuse me of no one can give me up to them I appeal to Caesar. And so we know that Paul he is he's a Roman citizen and so uh, probably his grandfather or great grandfather was granted some land and with that he was granted Roman citizenship and uh, that was then transferred through the generations down to Paul and because Paul is a Roman citizen he has the ability to appeal to Caesar he's saying I'm not going to go to Jerusalem but under Roman law I will make sure that I'm tried before Caesar. And so when he does this Festus then refers with his counsel verse 12 and he replied you have appealed to Caesar to Caesar you will go. And this is an important part of the story, okay? But it is just kind of setting up as what we're doing as we go forward. So uh, Paul knows that going to Jerusalem would likely result in his death, and he knows that Jesus told him he has to go to Rome. In Acts 23, uh, after one of his trials, Jesus physically appears to Paul and lets him know that as you've witnessed in Jerusalem, I'm also going to have you witness in Rome. And so God's hand is about to move. As Paul appeals to Caesar, his course is set. Uh, the other thing that Luke makes clear in this is that uh, as, as Festus is going about this, politics are mo his motivation, not justice. He, he wants to do the Jews a favor. Uh, he's, he's in this for political alliance, not necessarily what's right. Um, and so he's trying to negotiate his new role, and in that he has to maintain peace, he has to calm Jewish leadership, and he has to uphold Jewish, or excuse me, Roman law. Whether Paul gets a fair trial or not may or may not play into Festus's thinking. But he is at a loss. And we see this in verse 13. Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice had arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call to Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There is a man who was left prisoner by Felix. He was in Jerusalem. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up and brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about certain, a certain Jesus, a dead man, Paul, claimed to be alive. 
Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. And so what Festus does here is he shares what it's like to watch people who are followers of God uh, fight with each other. It's confusing. Um, that, that's how the outsider looks in at this. He sees people who are supposed to be representatives of, of God fighting with each other, and he says, that's confusing. Um, you can also imagine that if you had to go to a family reunion and all you could expect was bickering at the family reunion, you probably wouldn't want to go, and you probably wouldn't invite people either, right? And that's essentially what he's looking at in from the outside. It's like a messed up family reunion where everybody fights with each other and violence breaks out. It's not attractive. It doesn't make you go, man, I wonder what they're doing on Sunday. Let's go hang out there. And we have to recognize that a lot of times that's, that's kind of something that we can be known for as believers. It's, it's a place where, you know, that church up on the hill, they sure know right from wrong, um, and they're willing to tell you really mean about it, too. Uh, and, and the other thing I see is, you know, they, 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 they seem to know their doctrine, but they sure fight with other churches in the area. They don't seem to be able to get along with the other churches around them. And so, man, I don't know if I'd want to hang out there. And so Festus shares, that's kind of what it's like to watch this going on in this trial. But what Paul does is he keeps the focus on the resurrection of Jesus. The, the Jews, they want to shift the attention to matters of the law. They want to shift the attention to how we should be moral. Jesus, uh, Paul, what he does is he focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. And well-intentioned Festus, he's at a loss. Uh, and so what he does is he calls uh, Herod the Great's great-grandson. This is Agrippa II. He, he says, would you give me some advice? Now, if you know anything about the Herodian, Herodian dynasty, Herod the Great, uh, him and then his son and then Herod Agrippa II here, uh, three generations, they control uh, what they called the king of Judea, okay? And so he's in this position. He's a king, but he's not really actually able to do anything without Roman consent, okay? Um, and what we know about Agrippa, like the rest of his family, he wasn't actually Jewish, but he was an Edomite. Uh, and the Edomites, they were, they were viewed by the Romans as being close enough to Jewish to be made rulers. Uh, they weren't actually giving the Jews rulership over Judea. They picked somebody that was kind of like a cousin, and they said, you can have this position. Uh, the Edomites were integrated into Jewish customs and religion during the second century BC, and they held uh, what we would call synchristic uh, um, religious views. So they would take what they had in their previous views of God and religion and then sort of mesh them together with what the Jews believed. And so you have even more confusion added to what is being believed in the room. Um, you can really kind of feel for poor Festus that it's just one group of people uh, saying one thing and another. It's very confusing. And so what we have is a, a picture of a group of people who lack consistency in their beliefs and their practices. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't mesh on what they believe and how they should practice their beliefs. Uh, we also see a group of people that are not necessarily concerned about what's right, but what's expedient for them to maintain power. Um, and what this does is it sounds a lot like Jesus' trial, um, what happened to him. Uh, he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, and then he does the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in verse 47 of John 11, it says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened to council, and we're saying, what are we doing? 
for this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you can see their motivation isn't what's right. It isn't what God is up to. It's how do we maintain power? But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know not, Do you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish? How do we keep hold of what we have? And so you look at this, and it's the same thing going on roughly 30 years later. How do we maintain our power, our position, our security, our wealth? And when self-preservation becomes our focus, what's right and what's moral often gets lost. What God is up to often gets lost. And so this is something that we have to watch out for. Is, is are, we doing what, are we doing what we're doing so that we can maintain self-preservation? Is it so that I can keep my wealth? Is it so that I can have my security? Is it so that my position isn't lost? Am I doing what I'm doing simply because it matches what I think is the right thing politically, politically or is it what's actually right? Um, am, I, am, I, am I making choices in what I'm doing here based upon what keeps me safe and secure, or am I making choices here based upon where I clearly see God's hand leading? Am I willing to step out and do something bold? Am I willing to allow God to have control, or am I going to maintain what I think will be best for me? And that's who Paul is going to stand before. And in verse 23, it says, So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp and entered the auditorium with military commanders and prominent men of the city. Um, and so what we see right here is this is a big, big crowd of very important people. Uh, Luke is showing us that Paul is about to share Jesus with some of the most influential people in the Roman world. Uh, you have probably five Roman commanders uh, that, that were in Caesarea at this point in time, plus the Sanhedrin, plus a governor, plus a king. A whole bunch of very influential people in the Roman world are going to hear about who Jesus is. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that, she, that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. So you really get a picture of how confused Festus is. He's appealed to Caesar. I'm going to send him there for trial, but I don't even know what to say he's done wrong. And so he asks uh, Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa is obviously, this is the king of Judea, and Bernice is his sister. Uh, it, it's rumored that Agrippa and Bernice actually had an incestuous relationship. Uh, if you know about the Herodian dynasty, you know that this is a group of people who, uh, they, they do not follow God. They are not interested in what God is doing, right? Herod the Great was the one that, uh, when Jesus was born, said, get rid of the, the baby boys in the area. Let's go, let's go kill them. And Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. Uh, his son would have been the one that had John the Baptist beheaded, and here he is having his grandson having an incestuous relationship, likely with his with his granddaughter. And, and so you get the picture of a group of people that they're not really out to do what's right. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is we look at these people and we think these are maybe people that you and I would condemn. 
you and I would look at them and we'd say, man, that's an evil group of people. Um, incestuous, um, sexually immoral, um, willing to kill people, um, doing anything that they can to hang on to power. Um, and, then, and then you got the Sanhedrin, they're liars, murderers, doing anything that they can to maintain their autonomy so that they can be in control. You and I would look at them and go, what a mess. You know what God says? Hey, Paul, go share Jesus. Hey, Paul, go talk to them about the resurrection. And so you get this really clear picture of what God would actually have us do. Uh, Paul, in his beliefs, when his beliefs in Jesus are put on trial, he stays within the legal channels that protect him, and he's a Roman citizen, and he's willing to operate there. But far more important, he makes sure that people know that Jesus is alive, right? He said that they were arguing over matters of their religion, and this certain man, Jesus, a dead man, that Paul said was alive. What, what Paul does is he focuses on this dead man who is alive. His name is Jesus. And you know what? That's true today. Jesus is alive. He, he is still Lord. He is still sitting at the right hand of power. His hand still guides the course of history. We don't, we don't serve a God that's dead, but we serve one that's living. We don't serve a God made with human hands and our imagination, but one that showed up in human history and proved himself, demonstrated his love, knew, knew our brokenness, and desired to relent and save us. And so you look at this and you go, well, when my beliefs are put on trial, what should I do? I'll get afraid. I'll be spiteful of those that are trying my beliefs. I'll be self-seeking just like they are. I'll, I'll bunker in. I'll build walls. And I'll get defensive. No. Rather, what we see is that when this happens, it's time to go on the offense and winsomely share the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and, and you're going to see more of what this looks like next week. But what Paul does is he shares how God showed up in his life. He shares how he met the risen Lord Jesus. And so could you do this? You know, we look at our society and we go, it does look like the walls are closing in a little bit around us as far as Christianity is concerned. It does look like we're becoming more and more abnormal within our society. Hey, great. And the natural tendency would be to wall up, to bunker in, to get defensive. But what we see here is this, this is actually how God is going to operate to use us to share the gospel with other people, to share that there was this dead man. He went on a cross and he died for our sins. He paid for them once and for all. And then he rose again. He is alive. I talked with him this morning. When I was 10 years old, I, I got caught in a lie. I pulled some sort of, I don't remember what the lie was, but I knew I was guilty. And that was the moment for me where it was like, 
there's something wrong with Kurt. I have a hard time obeying my parents. I have a hard time being kind to my sisters. I have a hard time telling the truth when I did something wrong. I want to hide it instead of deal with it, right? And I knew there was something wrong with me, and I knew that I had done wrong. And I remember my dad knew it as well. And so we were on a drive, and we're sitting in this little, I don't know, probably like an 84 blue Toyota Corolla, and we're at a stoplight. And, he, and I'd heard the gospel before, but he shared with me how Jesus had died on the cross for my sin. For that, he said, for, in particular, for that lie and other ones like it, for the wrong I had done, Jesus died for that. So I understood my guilt, and I understood my need of a Savior, and I believed that Jesus was that Savior at that age. I didn't understand that Jesus was alive for another 10 years. I didn't understand the resurrection and that he was present and available, that his spirit indwelled me, that he had actually made me his home. I didn't understand that for another 10 years. And so for the next 10 years of my life, what I did was I thought God was a rule keeper for about the first next five years. God's a rule keeper. Keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules. Not very good at this. I was trying to keep the rules before and all I learned was I needed a savior. And the more that I try and keep the rules, the more that I need a savior. And so that was exhausting. And so I gave up on it. And this is what we do. We either go to a place of keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules, or we say, never mind the rules. Let's just go have some fun. And so probably the next five years of my life were let's go have some fun. And boy, was that unfulfilling, just indulging my flesh. It didn't, it didn't give me, like this isn't it either. I can't keep the rules and it's not really that much good breaking them either. What am I supposed to do? And that's when I heard and understood that Jesus is alive. That I have a father who loves me and he's not there to beat me up, but he's there to put his arm around me and guide me. That I have a God who cares about me and, and he proved it. His, his son Jesus went to the cross to prove that, to give his life for me, to pay for the consequences of my sin, to bring me in right relationship with God. And I understood the savior part, but I didn't get the Lord part. I was still Lord. I was still either going to keep the rules in my own strength or disobey them in my own strength. I was still Lord. And then the lordship of Jesus became clear to me that because he is risen, he deserves all of me. Not part of me, not a little bit of me. He gets all of me. And so I surrender to him. And I'm not going to try and call the shots anymore, but he gets to lead. It's not about me keeping the rules. And it's not about me doing what feels good. It's about following Jesus as he guides me. And the rules get taken care of and then the desires change. He actually gives me a new heart and a new set of desires and I begin to want what he wants. And I'm changed. And so when our beliefs are on trial, you can get defensive. You can build up some walls. You can bunker in. Or you can go, you know... I hear what you're saying, that you struggle with Christianity. I hear that, I, I got it. You're struggling with, with some of the morality that we teach because it doesn't match what, what's, what's popular right now. I get that. I get that you, like me and everybody else I've ever met, wants to call the shots for themselves and doesn't want to submit to a Lord because we're all fundamentally broken. But Jesus is alive. And this is how he transformed me. I'm not the person I was. 
I'm not the lost 10-year-old boy who, who, who knows he's caught in a lie but doesn't know how to be saved. And I'm not the, I'm not the kid that grew up through his teens wondering, how, what is life about? I know what it's about. Life is about this Jesus who's alive and has saved me. He's brought me into relationship with the God of the universe. And then he's done this crazy thing where once I was his enemy, now he's made me his friend. Once I fought against him, I was a rebel, and now he made me an ambassador. And in Acts 1.8, he tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses in your hometown and the people that you're comfortable with. And then I'm going to have you get outside your comfort zone. Though Judeans, they're kind of similar to you. You're going to be, those are going to be people who have pretty similar views of the world as you. You're a Republican, they're a Republican. Easy conversation. But now what I want you to do is I want you to go to Samaritan. You're a Republican, they're a Democrat. Oh, can we even talk to each other? And then what I want you to do is I want you to witness where you're comfortable, a little outside your comfort zone, outside your comfort zone, and then I'm going to have you go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to have you get way outside your comfort zone. And in all of those places, you're going to be my witness. You're going to share with people that there was this Jesus who died on the cross, and he's not dead, he's alive. And because of that, I lead a completely different life. And I want you to hear this this morning. If your testimony is that you believe in Jesus, but your life has not changed, something's wrong. Because that's not Christianity. And what you need to know is that God is with you. He is caring for you. But you don't lead anymore. He does. Because transformation, while remaining in control, won't happen. You will not be changed while you hold on to the reins. It will only happen when you hand them over to Jesus and you let him lead. The other thing, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you, or maybe you're listening to me and you go, I, you know, this sounds kind of out there to me. You're not alone. But God is talking to you. And he does this through his scriptures and he, he wants you. He cares about you. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows the broken things about you that you would hide from everybody else. He knows them and he wants to save you from them. His son went to the cross to pay for them and he rose from the dead so that those things could no longer define you but he could now define you. He wants to give you this new life. And so, if you're a Christian here with me this morning, you, would, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus. God. I, I pray you know this life change. And guess what? The trajectory of the world that we live in is not one that leads to us being accepted. We're gonna be the sore thumb in society. You need to be ready to be that. Not get defensive, not be afraid, not tell everybody else how much more right than you than they are, but be ready to share your story and how you've met this Jesus who is alive and how he's changed you. And so I, 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 could you do that? 
If you had the opportunity to share your story, what would you share? When did you meet Jesus? When did he become your savior? What sorts of life change have you experienced as you've followed him? Could you share that? Would you view the opportunity of your beliefs in Jesus being put on trial as a good thing? And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't made this decision to follow him as your Lord, I want you to hear loud and clear. I'm going to say it again. He wants you. He wants you so much that he entered into human history and bore your sin. He bore my, he, you know, I was talking to a kid this last week. I said, you know he bore your sin? He goes, yeah, he bore everybody's sin. I said, no, but he bore yours. He did, he did it for everyone, but he did it for you. And it's a personal thing where God loves you. And he wants you to enter into this relationship where his arm is around you. He's not there to beat you up. He'll discipline you because he loves you and he'll tell you the places that you've missed the mark so that you can become more like his son Jesus. But that's because he cares about you. He wants to see you advance. And so this is the relationship that we're invited into as Christians. This is the relationship that we have as Christians. And it's the one that we share with you if you're here this morning seeking. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you again that uh, you do speak to us through your word. You, we, we see you and your power in creation. We see your character and your love for us in the scriptures. And then we see it so full, so remarkably full in your son, Jesus. You have made yourself known. And the other thing that you have made known is that you love us and you want us to be reconciled to you. You want us to be in your family. And then as we enter into your family, God, it's very clear that we're going to be, uh, we're going to exit the family that most of the world is stuck in. You're going to call us out of that family and you're going to make us part of your family. And as you make us part of your family and, and you're building this kingdom that we, we know as the, the new heavens and the new earth that we'll enjoy when this life is over, you're saying, will you, will you make my new heavens and my new earth full by sharing who I am with this world around you? And so you give us tremendous purpose here as well, God. I do pray that we would keep the focus on you, the focus on your son, Jesus, who was once dead, but not for very long. Just three days later, he got up and he conquered sin and death. And because of that, I'm a new person. What a tremendous message that you, you, you have for us to share. I pray that we would share it with love and boldness. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We really hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. We also hope that you're able to join us again next week as we continue studying the powerful truths that God has revealed to us in the book of Acts. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.